The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. Scripture teaches that Whenever we sin, we lose fellowship with God. We don't lose our salvation. And we uh, grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. And all we need to do to recover fellowship and the filling of the Spirit is to uh, admit or acknowledge our sins to the Lord, First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we take a few minutes, silent prayer, and then I will open prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this evening to study your word, your word that illuminates our thinking so that we understand your thoughts, so that we understand how to live, we understand your plan and purposes for history. Father, now as we continue our study in Daniel and look at the career of the Antichrist this evening, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and how uh, these prophetic Insights are designed not simply to satisfy our curiosity, but to encourage us that in times of distress and chaos, that we can be reminded that you are in control and will bring about your divine purposes in history. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I just forgot to do one little thing. Hold on real quick while I... uh, Run a new little, keep forgetting to turn this little program on. Okay. Now we are set. Okay. Open your Bibles with me to Daniel uh, chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. This is one of those really fun passages that if you are a pastor and like to study that you can really sink your teeth into because there are uh, a number of difficulties with interpreting different things, a number of different problems that, that uh, involve. You don't have anything going on back there. Okay. This is just one of those fun days. Right, press the on button. Make sure it's plugged in. Are you not getting video or not getting sound? All the technological problems. Yeah, because I don't see a red light back there. You press the uh, you press the record button.
Got it plugged in, got a fresh battery in it. There we go. Okay. Al? Okay. Crank up. So I was saying this is uh, one of those fun passages that has a number of problems, number of difficulties that are a lot of fun to get into. And I've seen this coming. I've been studying on it. And I think in the last couple of days as I've been uh, cranking on it, uh, I probably read over 200 pages of material and cranked my way through about, over the last couple of weeks, about eight or ten different cassettes of different people teaching aspects of this passage, as well as going through probably another 100 pages of material or something, which just barely scratches the surface. I think a lot of people don't understand. They, they get the idea that somehow when a man goes to seminary that they get the answers to these things. Well, they don't. They just get the tools. And what is uh, especially fun about a passage like this is that even among um, scholars who are dispensational and premillennial and pre-tribulational, you, what happens is you start looking at the um, literature on the subject and no two people agree. And that makes it just a whole lot of fun because you've got to deal with about maybe 15 or 20 different passages that all correlate, and nobody puts them all together the same way. But it's always fun to go through and study and, and, and develop because each time you go through, you um, gain a little greater understanding of some of these issues. I spent about an hour on the phone with Dr. Ice today, and I don't agree with his position on some things here. But that's okay. He and I have discussed it. And we, you know, nothing here is the kind of thing that you want to go fight a war over. Uh, but, and you need to know that as a congregation that there are some things that, that just aren't that, in prophecy especially, that just aren't that crystal clear in terms of timing. But a lot of that we won't quite get to until next time. But we will start getting into the subject with verse 36 of Daniel 11. And at verse 36, there is a shift in the subject from what we've covered in the first 35 verses of the chapter. The first 35 verses have focused on the historical aspect. What's history now? It was prophecy when Daniel had the vision at the time, 538 B.C., that he had the vision. It was yet future. It was a uh, detailed description of what would take place during the time of the Seleucid Empire after the Greek Empire broke up following the death of Alexander the Great. Everything up to the point of verse 35 had been fulfilled in uh, human history and had been fulfilled roughly between the period of about 205 B.C. down to about 1 uh, 60 to 150 BC, and then it's certain, at the last two verses indicated certain trends that would continue up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And then there is a shift in verse 36, and this is typical in prophetic passages. We'll look at the specifics in a moment, but in Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and Daniel 8, and Daniel 9, we have seen where there are gaps, prophetic gaps, between two verses. One verse will talk about something that was fulfilled before the first coming of Christ, and then the next verse is really related to something that occurs during the tribulation, and some 2,000 years may separate the two verses. And to understand this, we have an illustration called the Mountain Peaks of Prophecy. Now, I just scanned this picture in from the Tim LaHaye Prophecy Study Bible, but it's a good illustration of what takes place. Now, if you look over here at the um, the prophet here, this is looking forward in time. So these mountain peaks represent key events in history that are yet future to this time of the prophet. So it's like a timeline running from the left to the right. And if you've ever been out uh, somewhere where there are some high mountain peaks, like out in Colorado or up in uh, Washington State or California, and you are approaching from the plains, I remember many times driving from Texas to Colorado, and you would just get that first glimpse of the Spanish peaks down uh, in southern uh, Colorado. 
and you would see them off in the distance, and then you would begin to see other peaks behind them, and they looked like they were just right up against each other. But once you get there and get right on top of those peaks, you realize that the next peak that you saw is really separated by about 30 or 40 miles from the first peak. But when you're off at a distance, you don't see that valley that is in between those two peaks. They look like they're right together, part of the same mountain. And so when the prophets in the Old Testament were looking forward, they would see events such as the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, uh, prophesied in Micah 5.2. They would see uh, the events surrounding the suffering Messiah. On uh, and I, like for example, in Isaiah chapter 53, they would see information about the Antichrist, the coming of Christ as royalty, as the King uh, at the second coming. But they wouldn't see the time gaps in between these events, and so to them they were often just joined right next to each other. And it's not until you get into the New Testament and into the Church Age that you begin we realize that there were large time gaps between some of these events. And so up to verse 35, you have history that takes place prior to the first advent and actually can go up to about uh, 70 A.D., which would be right about here. And then in between verse 35 and 36, you have the entire church age. And then starting with verse 36, you have information about the coming of the Antichrist. Another way of looking at this is in terms of the timeline we've had before at the cross. Jesus died, uh, paid the penalty for our sins. And then 50 days afterwards on the day of Pentecost, the church age began. The church age ends when Jesus returns in the clouds, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, and 18. And then the rapture occurs, and all believers from the church age are taken to be with him in the clouds. Jesus returns in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4, for the church. Then at some point following the rapture, there's some gap, we don't know how long, but then the last week of Daniel 9, of Daniel 70 weeks, takes place, which is for Israel. It's a seven-year period of tribulation, and that ends with the second coming of Christ when he comes to the earth with the church in judgment. And that's just some some of the arguments for why the rapture must occur before the tribulation. There is one coming of Christ described in 1 Thessalonians 4 where he comes in the air, for his bride to take the bride to heaven. John 14:1. for where I am there ye may be also. The second coming, he comes to the earth in judgment, and the bride or the, the bride or the church accompanies him. And then that is followed by the 1,000-year rule and reign of Christ on the earth. Here's just another way of looking at it. Christ comes at the rapture during the... Seven-year tribulation, it's divided into two, three-and-a-half-year periods with the abomination of desolation taking place in the midpoint of the tribulation. And that ends with the second advent of Christ. There will be a judgment of tribulation saying, uh, tribulation uh, unbelievers and then the thousand-year millennium. Now, what we're looking at here is this period right here, the tribulation and specifically the career of the Antichrist. That's what's in view here in Daniel chapter uh, Daniel chapter 11, starting in verse 36. We ha- it can be divided into two sections. Verses 36 to 39 focus on his uh, religious and political career, and verses 40 down through 45 focus on his military career. So we're going to have to take some time to compare what's taught in this passage with what is taught in some key passages in the New Testament. First of all, let's look at the person of the Antichrist. I want to take the majority of time this evening to look at the two key personages in the tribulation period. The first is a person we refer to as the Antichrist. This is the key human leader during the tribulation who opposes the plan of God and is the pawn of Satan and who attempts to destroy the Jews. This term is used primarily to refer to what 
John refers to in Revelation 13:1 as the first beast. He is the ruler of the revived Roman Empire, the Western Confederacy of ten nations. Now, all of this is going to be clear, but the reason I'm emphasizing this right now is because the phrase Antichrist is only used in a few verses in 1 John chapter 2. In verse 18, John says, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. So it is this one phrase where you have the word Antichrist in the singular that it refers to a specific individual. Now, this phrase, Antichrist, in the Greek, looks like this. Antichristos. A-N-T-I-C-H-R-I-S-T-O-S. Now, this preposition that's used as a prefix here, in classical Greek, had the meaning of against. Also, in the English, we have a preposition on anti, anti, that has the idea of against. However, in the, in the, in Koine Greek, in the New Testament, this preposition never has the meaning of against. It is always used to mean instead of, has the idea of a substitute, and when applied here in Antichrist, it has the idea of a counterfeit Messiah. Christos from the noun uh, meaning, to, uh, meaning anoint, and he is the anointed one. It is the Greek form of the uh, Hebrew Mashiach, meaning anointed one, Messiah or title for uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the second person of the Trinity, the promised Savior from the Old Testament. So its primary emphasis is as a counterfeit Messiah. However, in his role as a counterfeit Messiah, this personage, of course, is going to be against the plan and purposes of God. But this idea of against is really a secondary background concept. He really functions as a counterfeit Messiah, a counterfeit God. Now, that is crucial to understand when we get into some of the other passages we're going to look at uh, in the New Testament related to uh, the, the, uh, this personage, the Antichrist. He is distinct from the second beast of Revelation 13.11, who is known also as the false prophet. That's another title that's applied to him later. And we have to understand the distinction between the Antichrist and the false prophet as two individuals. Now, there's various titles that are given in the Old Testament, specifically more in Daniel than anywhere else, to the Antichrist. This is the little horn that we studied in Daniel chapter 7, verses 8 and 9 and 19 through 26. Remember, there was the goat with the little horn that came up and supplanted the uh, uh, ten horns, and it's the little horn that conquers, and that's the Antichrist. And then in Daniel 8.23, he's referred to as the insolent king. In Daniel 9.26 and 27, which is the passage that deals with Daniel's 70 weeks, is it getting smoky in here? Or is that just me? This seems a little hazy. Don't want one of the air conditioners burning out and blowing, blowing stuff out here. Uh, in Daniel 9, 26 to 27, he is referred to as the prince who is to come. He's referred to as the one who makes desolate and the one who uh, performs the abomination of desolation described in Daniel 9, 27, Daniel 11, 31, where it's talked about the historical fulfillment of that with the uh, uh, with Antiochus Epiphanes when he uh, put up a statue to Zeus in the uh, Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem and then sacrificed a pig on the uh, altar and desecrated the temple. That is a type or a picture of what the Antichrist will do when he sets himself up as God during the tribulation. 
that is also referred to by Jesus in Matthew 24:15, where he warned the Jews that when they see the abomination of desolation. Now remember, Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple in about 167 uh, B.C., so when Jesus speaks in Matthew 24:15, that's already passed. So he is focusing on the future that in Matthew uh, 24, he says, when you see in the future the uh, abomination of desolation, then go to the mountains for protection. So that was a warning. Uh, the one who makes desolate is the Antichrist. In 2 Thessalonians 2.3, which we will examine in a minute, he is called the man of lawlessness and also the son of destruction. That's a Hebrew, based on a Hebrew idiom indicating that he is characterized by lawlessness, meaning he doesn't uh, recognize any other authority other than himself, and he produces destruction. Jesus himself said of the tribulation period that it would be a time of destruction and warfare unlike any that was experienced at any other time in human history. The Antichrist is called the lawless one in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8. And then in Revelation, he is referred to as the beast. He is the first beast, the beast who comes out of the sea in Revelation 13, 1. Key passages for this reference are Revelation 11, 7, 13:1, 14:9, 15:2, 16:2, 17:3, and 13:19:20 and 20:10. He is called the despicable person in Daniel 11:21. Actually, that is directly related to Antiochus, but it applies by application to Antiochus because I mean, to the Antichrist, because Antiochus Epiphanes was a type or shadow image of the Antichrist. Then he is called the strong-willed king in Daniel 11:36, and the worthless shepherd in Zechariah 11:16 to 17. These are just some of the titles, and these titles combine to give us some sense of his character, some sense of who he is. Now, there are various other characteristics given in Scripture. I'm going to go through ten of them. First of all, he rises to power during the transition between the rapture and the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. He is not revealed during the present church age. We're not going to be able to look out there on the historical scene and look at somebody who is the head of, for example, the European Economic Community or Prime Minister of Britain or President of the United States or some present contemporary personage and say, ah, that's the Antichrist. If you know who the Antichrist is, uh, you're either stuck here during the tribulation or you're having uh, a psychotic episode. We will not know who the Antichrist is until Jesus comes uh, until after the rapture, he is not revealed, he does not come to power, he does not make his power plays until after the rapture occurs. So don't get distracted. See, in Daniel 9.27 gives us this information. He, the, the he of this verse refers to the prince who is to come. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That is what begins the Tribulation. That's what begins Dan, the last week of Daniel. And he doesn't come into power until that point in time. Second, we've seen that he is the head of a confederation of Western powers, ten nations, during the tribulation years. And according to uh, Daniel 7, he, uh, point number three, he rises to power following the confederation of ten nations, and he assumes control by force and subdues three of the ten, ma- ten members. That's in Daniel chapter 7, verse 24. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. So the Antichrist is the one who ri- arises after the first ten kings. These ten kings represent ten nations uh, in Europe. We've seen from our study of the image in Daniel chapter 2 that these are nations that have their historical and cultural roots in the old Roman Empire. 
They are not all specifically nations that were part of the old Roman Empire. They could include the United States, for example, because our cultural and historical roots are in old Rome. If you go back and you study your American history in the 18th century, our founding fathers were educated in a system that idealized the Roman Republic, and that was the model on which they based the, uh, our, our constitution and our form of government. For them, a republic was the highest form of government, and the precedence for their education, uh, the forms of their education, the priorities in their education system in the 18th century was ancient Rome. So this could include the United States. Remember, at the base of, the, of Daniel's image in Daniel 2, you have the feet, which includes the ankles, the feet of iron and clay. So the iron represents the members that were part of the old Roman Empire, and the clay, that is the brittle potter's clay that was used there, would be newer or weaker elements that are introduced and brought together to form this new or revived Roman Empire at the end time. And then we read in verse 25, and I want you to remember this. This is one of his characteristics. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. He will intend to make alterations in times and in law. See, he is lawless. He makes his own law. We're going to connect that to Second Thessalonians chapter 2 in a few minutes. And he, but he speaks out against God, the Most High. So that's part of what the, the little horn uh, of Daniel 7 will do. This, this uh, 10th or this 11th king that arises is going to be compared in Daniel 7 and 8 with the little horn. Okay, fourth point on the Antichrist. At the midpoint of the tribulation, he sets up his statue in the Holy of Holies in the tribulation. Now, actually, I skipped one. This should be point. Point one was he rises to power during the transition between the rapture and the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. Point two, he's the head of a confederation. Point three, he rises to power. And then this is point four. He establishes a mark, which I have a different point four in my notes. I don't know where that came from. Let's go with what's on the screen. And the Antichrist establishes a mark which signifies religious allegiance to him, without which there is no buying or selling. This is the mark of the beast described in Revelation 13:16, where they are given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. This is the Greek preposition in Revelation 13:16, epi, which means upon, not in. Sometimes you'll hear people talk today about some kind of microchip that's implanted or it could be something like that. That would be a different preposition. That would be in. So this is something visible. It's something that you can easily spot and identify who is a, someone who has accepted the mark of the beast. So it will probably be a tattoo of some kind, I would guess. That's especially with the rise in popularity of tattoos in recent years um, in Western culture. Point number five, at the midpoint of the tribulation, his statue will be erected in the Holy of Holies of the tribulation temple. At the midpoint of the tribulation, his statue will be erected for worship in the Holy of Holies in the Tribulation Temple. He will set himself up as God. We've already seen in Daniel 7 that he speaks out against God, and he will offer himself as a substitute God. Point number six, he's usually pictured in the Bible as a warrior. He pursues peace, and he wages war, and he operates on deceitful tactics. He is a military man. That's what we'll see in our passage in Daniel 11. He is a, primarily a warrior. He is, one might say, he worships war. That is his primary way of, um, of engaging the, uh, diplomacy is through war. And on the one hand, he will speak deceitfully, and then he will strike out in military attacks. Point number seven, he is personally indwelt by Satan. He is personally indwelt by Satan. 
There is an unholy trinity presented in Revelation 12 and 13. And that's also important to understand some of the difficulties in this, these passages is that just as you have the holy trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where the Father is unseen, the Son is revealed and is the Messiah, and the Holy Spirit is the one whose job it is to uh, reveal and promote the Son. There's an unholy trinity in, in the, during the tribulation. There is Satan, who is roughly analogous to the Father. There is the Antichrist, who sets himself up as a substitute Christ. And then there is the false prophet, whose role it is to bring worship to the Antichrist as sort of a pseudo-Holy Spirit. So we have this uh, unholy trinity functioning during the tribulation. Verse 8, our point 8, rather. The first three and a half years of the tribulation represent his rise to power. He will persecute Christians and other opponents during a reign of terror that's going to go beyond any persecution or pogrom, any kind of hostility or holocaust ever experienced in human history. He is going to slaughter millions of Christians in order to get them out of the way. And now remember, the church, we as the church, will be resurrected at the rapture. But following the uh, the rapture, Millions are going to come to Christ. We know that there's a returned emphasis to Israel, that there will be 144,000 Jews saved almost instantly after the rapture. They will be evangelists who will have the seal of God on them. They will all survive the entire the tribulation, and they will uh, give out the gospel. And I think that one of the reasons, somebody once asked me, why is it important to study these kinds of prophetic passages now? They don't apply to us. Daniel 11 doesn't apply to us. Why is this significant? And I think one reason it's significant is because as we study these passages and teach them, we have it's on the Internet, it's on tapes, it's in books. As this material is taught in the church age, it will still it's going to survive the rapture. And it's going to be there for the people who are in the tribulation to read, to study, and to give them an understanding of what's going on. Folks, the tribulation is so terrible and so horrible, those folks aren't going to have time to study the Word of God. They're not going to have the leisure to get into these kinds of studies. So I think that that one of the reasons we need to study this and have this information is that it will be available for those during the tribulation as they go through this time of unprecedented horror and persecution. Ninth, at the end of the seven years, the Antichrist worldwide coalition begins to fragment, and there's an army from the east invading into Palestine in concert with one from the south, and all of this culminates in the campaign of Armageddon. Armageddon is a massive military or a series of military battles, a campaign that culminates, that would culminate in the self-destruction of the human race if it weren't for the fact that Jesus Christ is going to return and cut the battle short, defeat the Antichrist and false prophet and Satan, and save the remnant of Israel. Tenth, his destiny is to be sent to the lake of fire with the false prophet, Revelation 19:11 to 21. He is initially bound during the millennium. He's released again where he, at the end of the millennium, he will lead a brief, unsuccessful revolt, and then he is permanently consigned to the lake of fire along with the uh, false prophet and along with uh, Satan. And then finally, is he Jewish or Gentile? And he is a Gentile because Revelation 13.1 says that he comes out of the sea, and the sea is usually a term referring to the unregenerate mass of humanity as opposed to the earth of the land, which speaks of, of um, Israel. So he is, a, he is a Gentile. Furthermore, as a part of the times of the Gentiles, he is another or the last of the Gentile rulers who will dominate 
Jerusalem. Remember, starting in 586 B.C. with the defeat of Israel and the destruction of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar, the Jews are in the times of the Gentiles when Israel is always dominated by Gentile powers. Even when there is an autonomous Jewish state as there is today and as there was during the time of the Maccabees, they are still in existence simply because the Gentile powers that surround them and are stronger than them allow them to exist. And then the third reason he's a Gentile is because um, Daniel chapter 9 says that he that the people who destroyed the temple in 70 A.D. were the people of the prince who is to come. That phrase, the people of the prince who is to come, indicate that the people in in um, the people in A.D. 70 who destroyed the temple are identified ethnically with the prince who is to come. Romans, the Roman army, the 10th legion under Titus, destroyed uh, the temple and destroyed Israel militarily in 70 A.D. So that indicates that he will be uh, ethnically related to them, a descendant, a European descendant, and so that means he is a Gentile. Now that's a summary of the Antichrist, the leader of the revived Roman Empire, the first personage. Now we have the second personage, the second beast, the false prophet. The false prophet or the second beast. Now, uh-oh, i got a couple of these slides out of order. First of all, Jesus warned of false Christ and false prophets as two distinct categories. This is important to understand. Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, that there would be false Christ and false prophets who would arise. Now, he's speaking generally in terms of the trend of the age, but he makes a distinction between a false messiah and a false prophet. There are two different categories. One claims deity. The other is one who promotes a false religious system. Matthew 24, 24, Jesus said, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. So there is a distinction between the Antichrist as a pseudo-Christ or pseudo-Messiah and the false prophet who would be someone who would promote the religious worship of the false Messiah. This is further substantiated in Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 through 18, where the second beast is described as a distinct personage from the Antichrist, the first beast, who is the subject of Revelation 13, 1 through 10. As such, he is described in Revelation 13, 11 to 18 as a prophet or spokesman for the Antichrist and one who promotes the religious worship of the Antichrist. Let's just briefly go through Revelation 11, or 13, 11 to 18. John says, I saw another beast. First ten verses, he describes the first beast. I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. The first beast came up out of the sea. In the ancient world, sea monsters were among the most horrible things you could possibly imagine because the sea was virtually unknown. Uh, uh, So in imagery of that time, a beast coming out of the earth would not be as horrible, would not be as unknown, would not be as frightening, therefore not as powerful as a beast that came up out of the sea. So right away, there's the indication that this beast is less powerful, less threatening, less frightening than the first beast. So I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. Now I want you to notice this. This is where Bible study, uh, observation in Bible study is crucial. Notice it doesn't say he was like a lamb. That would indicate a messianic function. Now, there's a problem with that because in, among some older dispensationalists, they took the reference to a lamb here to indicate that he has a messianic role. But wait a minute. The Antichrist is the one who has the messianic role. That's why I've belabored the point up to this point to indicate that the First John 2 passage is talking about this individual who offers himself as the substitute God. So, John does not say he was like a lamb with two horns. 
he says he had two horns like a lamb. Now, the two horns, horns are, were symbolic and used in prophetic imagery as signs of power. So the two horns here indicate his power, but he doesn't have ten horns like the Antichrist does. He only has two horns. The Antichrist, remember, in Revelation 12, has, 12, has ten horns. He takes over those, those ten nations, so he's less powerful than the Antichrist. This is a point of comparison. He had two horns like a lamb. See, a ram has two horns. And he spoke as a dragon. So it's going to contrast the fact that he has this image of being passive and non-threatening like a lamb, but yet he's really has the power of Satan behind him, and he is uh, extremely dangerous. Verse 12, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. Now, here it's important that we... Um, Look at this word, in his, in his presence. Who does the his refer to? And this pronoun, that must refer back to the first beast. That's the nearest antecedent. He exercises all of the authority of the first beast in the presence of the first beast. So the first beast delegates a certain amount of authority to the second beast, and the role and responsibility of the second beast is to promote the worship of the first beast. That's what we'll say. We'll see. And he, now the he here is going to refer back to the, uh, you've got to really be careful here with the pronouns, this he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. That indicates that the subject is the uh, second beast, the false prophet. Now, when you get to the he as the subject of the second sub- sentence, we're still talking about the Antichrist. This isn't a reference back to, um, back to the Antichrist as the first beast. He's, and he and he, it's clearly referring to the second beast. He makes the earth earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast so the context also clearly states that that the he here must refer to the false prophet so the false prophet's role is to make the earth and those who dwell in it worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed verse 13 and he performed great signs so he's going to be a miracle worker he performs great signs. The Greek indicates highly unusual miracles are going to be performed by him, not just uh, fraudulent things, not just miracles that uh, uh, are believed in by the credulous, but he is actually going to perform genuine miracles uh, of an astounding He is imitating uh, Jesus Christ and the apostles in his performance of miracles. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. That uh, reminds us of the fire that Elijah called down from heaven when he was in his contest in uh, 1 Kings uh, 19 with the prophets of Baal. So he is going to perform these incredible miracles, and that is going to uh, give credibility to himself, but primarily to the Antichrist, so that millions will be deceived, verse 14, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast. So he performs them in the presence and under the authority of the first beast who is the Antichrist, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast. So you see he's bringing worship to that first beast, to the Antichrist. They're going to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. He's not making an image to himself. He's making the image of the Antichrist. Verse 15, And there was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast. So he's going to bring this non-animate image to life. This thing is going to come to life, and it's going to be like a, like he creates a living, breathing uh, creature. There was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So if they don't worship him, they're going to be martyred. Verse 16, and he causes all, he being the second beast, the false prophet, causes all, the small and the great, 
and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead, and that's the mark of the beast. So the mark of the beast for the Antichrist is actually administered and forced by the second beast. Everything he is doing is designed to bring power, to bring authority, and to bring worship to the Antichrist. Verse 17, he provides that no one should be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. Well, I'm not going to get, we're not going to get distracted by trying to figure out what 666 refers to, but it doesn't mean that it's a, um, uh, universal product code like you find on your can of Coke or anything else you buy at the store. And you may not know this, but if you look at the first, middle, and last digit on any UPC code, it's six. And back about 20 years ago when those were first coming out, everybody thought, ah, this is the mark of the beast. In fact, Moody Monthly ran a, a cover article on it, and there was a picture of somebody on the front cover of Moody Monthly, and stamped in the middle of their forehead was a UPC, Universal Product Code. Um, everybody gets so silly when they start talking about prophecy. Okay, what do we know about the that the Scripture reveals to us about this second personage, the Antichrist? I mean, the false prophet, excuse me. Characteristics of the false prophet. First of all, he is motivated by Satan. He's motivated by Satan. Second, he has delegated authority. Delegated from the Antichrist. Third, he promotes the worship of the first beast, that is, the Antichrist. Fourth, he performs signs and wonders, signs and miracles. He is going to perform legitimate, legitimate in the sense that they're real. They're not frauds. It's not sleight of hand. He's not David Copperfield. He is going to actually heal people. He's going to bring this image to life. It's not just some fraud. Uh, God is going to allow him, through Satan, to have these real miracles. The only thing, they're not legitimate in the sense that they're not from God. He deceives the unbelieving world so that millions follow him and worship the beast. He will promote the idolatrous worship of the first beast, the Antichrist. He has the power of death over people who do not worship the beast so that if they don't worship the Antichrist, they're going to be executed. And he has great economic power such that people will not be able to buy or sell unless they possess the mark of the beast. He is probably Jewish. You can't say this dogmatically, but based on the fact that he comes out of the earth and the phrase gay there used for earth often refers to the land in contrast to the sea of uh, 13.1, the Antichrist coming out of the sea, the false prophet out of the land, uh, many believe that this indicates that he, the, the false prophet is Jewish. The Antichrist is a Gentile, but the false prophet is Jewish. Now, another key passage that we need to look at to understand the Antichrist is in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. Let's just look there. Paul here is writing the Thessalonians in the second epistle to the Thessalonians to, again, further help them understand what he has already taught them in prophecy. Now, remember, Paul went to Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. While he was there, he obviously taught them about prophecy and what would take place in the future, but everybody got upset. Jesus was coming back, but then some believers began to die, and they wanted to know, well, what's going to happen to those who die before Jesus comes back? And that's why he answered that question in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, when he said that, that Jesus would return in the clouds, and those who were dead in Christ would call up to be together with him in the air, then we who are alive and remain uh, would be caught up also with them, thus to be with the Lord forever. So that's First Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18. He's already told them that in the first epistle. Now he comes back in the second epistle because they want some clarification on what he has said about these uh, prophetic issues. So in verse 3 he states, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, that is a reference to the tribulation, which he had gone into in First Thessalonians chapter 5, for it will not come about 
unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now, this is a fascinating verse because it's, I don't agree with the translation here in chapter, I mean, in verse 3. The word translated apostasy is the Greek word apostasia. Just, we just transliterated, transliterated it into English. A-P-O-S-T-A-S-I-A. Now, it has been demonstrated in numerous uh, lexical studies that the core meaning of apostasia means to depart. It's used of someone getting on a ship and leaving. It, it, the core meaning is a departure. Now, of course, there are many different kinds of departure. Sometimes the word was used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to describe the disobedience of the Jews, that they had departed from the law of Moses. And so that came to have the idea of a religious departure or a departure from the truth, which is the way we uh, often think of the concept of of, apost- of apostasy as being going as going into false doctrine, departing from the truth of Scripture. However, in the core meaning of the word, it means to to leave. It means to depart. It means to exit. And in the first 11 English translations of the Bible, it was translated depart. It wasn't until the King James Version that it was translated or transliterated apostasy. The first 11 English translations all translated it departure. And if you look down at verse 5... Paul states, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Now, it's possible that Paul could have been referring to something he taught while he was there, which we don't have any record of, but he's clearly referencing something he has taught them already. What did he teach them, and what was the subject of 1 Thessalonians? It was the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. So it is more than likely, I believe it's, it's for a couple of other reasons, that the way first second uh, test two three ought to be translated is that for it that is the tribulation will not come unless the departure comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction indicating that the departure i.e. the rapture must come before the uh, before the revealing of the antichrist the man of lawlessness furthermore. When you look at this passage, if it means apostasy in terms of falling away from truth or falling into false doctrine, what, people have been falling into false doctrine for the last 2,000 years. I mean, you have major denominations that are in, in serious apostasy today. What apostasy are we talking about? Furthermore, if the apostasy has to come before the rapture can occur, then shouldn't we be looking for the, the apostasy instead of the blessed hope? You see, the next thing that we're supposed to look for is the return of Jesus Christ for the church. But if the apostasy has to come back, then the, the, then the rapture isn't imminent anymore because something has to happen before the rapture can occur, that is, the apostasy. So it is def- most defensible both lexically and theologically that the word translated apostasy here should be translated departure and refers to the rapture, that the church will be raptured before the man of lawlessness is revealed, and that's the Antichrist called the son of destruction. And we've studied the Hebrew idiom of son of, which is an adjectival description of uh, our characteristic of an individual. So when he's called the son of destruction, what that means is he is going to be characterized by destruction. And then in verse 4 we read that he opposes and exalts himself above every, not most, not 99%, but above every so-called God or object of worship. So it is the man of lawlessness who is going to exalt himself above every god, all the gods of the Greek pantheon, all the gods of the Roman pantheon, all the New Age gods, Hindu gods, Buddhist gods, He will exalt himself above every God, including the God of the Bible and Jesus Christ. 
He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So the Antichrist is going to make claims, personal claims, that he is God. This fits with the whole concept of him being Antichrist, being that is the substitute of Christ. He is going to set himself up as God. Verse 5, Paul says, Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? And in verse 6, And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. You see, one of the things that is happening during this church age is the presence of the church and the presence of the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer is having a restraining influence on Satan. Satan wants to promote his agenda through the Antichrist and the false prophet. He hasn't a clue when the rapture is going to occur any more than you or I do. So in every generation, he's got his system. He's got somebody he's going to empower to be the Antichrist. He's got somebody he's going to empower to be the false prophet. That's why in every generation, you can have people who can legitimately look out and say, well, it looks like Napoleon could be the Antichrist. It looks like Bismarck could be the Antichrist. It looks like uh, Wilhelm of Germany could be the Antichrist in World War One, or Hitler in World War Two, or Saddam Hussein. I mean, it just goes on. Every generation can legitimately identify people and circumstances that could potentially be pulled together for the tribulation, but it doesn't happen because he is. There is a restrainer in human history, and that is the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church. And as soon as the Holy Spirit is removed, as soon as the restrainer is pulled out of human history, then the pot boils over. And then literally all hell is going to break loose in human history. And that's what verse 6 is all about. You know what restrains him now, that is Satan, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So God is designing history in such a way that he is preventing the ascendancy of the Antichrist and false prophet in order to fulfill his plan and purposes for mankind. The... application that we can take from this is that if the chaotic mess of the tribulation has been designed by God for a purpose and is completely under his control, then we shouldn't panic whenever international or national conditions look chaotic, no matter how far down the stock market drops, no matter how many terrorist attacks there are, no matter how many wars occur on the scene. We have no excuse for ever panicking as believers. We know that God is in control and is going to bring everything to pass according to his word. So we keep our focus on him and keep up the fight of learning doctrine. Now, what we learn from Second Thess 2 and what we learn from Revelation 13 is that there's two people, the Antichrist and the false prophet. The Antichrist is a substitute Messiah. He is going to exalt himself above every god. It is the role of the second personage, the false prophet, who is possibly Jewish, to bring all worship and honor to the first beast, the Antichrist. So now the question becomes, in verse 36 of Daniel chapter 11, back to our passage, then the king will do as he pleases. And we have to ask, ask the question, who is the king here? We just have a couple of minutes, so we can't get very far into this. But I'm going to cover the first point. Some people teach that the king here is still Antiochus. Now, we, I just want to cover seven reasons why this can't be Antiochus. Mostly it's liberals who don't believe in predictive prophecy in the Bible and some covenant theologians who reject the idea that the king here is the future Antichrist. Those who teach this, let me back up, seven reasons why this can't be Antiochus. First of all, there are statements made about the character of the king in these verses, verses 36 down to 45. There are statements made about the character of the king which are not true of Antiochus. Second, the policies of the king in verses 36 down to 39 
are presented as if they are new information. Now, we've just seen similar policies in the previous seven or eight verses related to Antiochus. But when it comes to this new king in verse 36, the similar policies are presented as if they're brand new information. So that would suggest that it's a different king. Third, historical matters in these verses are presented. Historical matters here do not match anything that occurred in the lifetime of Antiochus Epiphanes. And even liberals do suggest that this possibly could be a reference to somebody else because the details in the first 35 verses have been fulfilled so precisely or so correct, historically correct in terms of Antiochus that it just seems odd that these details wouldn't fit Antiochus as well. Fourth reason, the text seems to end with the expression of Antiochus's hostility to the Jews in verses 34 and 35. Everything leads up to a crescendo in 34 and 35, and then there seems to be a shift in focus in verse 36. Fifth, the terminology, the king, in verse 36, is different from what precedes. Up to this point, it's been the king of the north, the king of the north, the king of the north. Now here it's the king, and when we get down into verse 40, we will see that this king in verse 36 is distinct from the king of the north in verse 40. So the Antiochus, Antiochus and the Seleucid kings have all been referred to by the title King of the North, and yet this king in verse 36 is distinct from the King of the North in verse 40. And then I, that, I really combined two, two points there. First of all, the fifth point was that the terminology of the king is different from the preceding King of the North. And the sixth point is that this king is distinguished from the king of the north in verse 40. And then the seventh point, this ruler, described in verses 36 to 45, operates in the worst period of history for the Jews. He operates in the worst period of history for the Jews, and that was not an Old Testament period. That is something that was predicted by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24. Therefore, the personage of verse 36 must be someone yet future. Now, that has been identified with three different people. There are those who think that this describes uh, the Antichrist, but they identify the Antichrist with the king of the north. In other words, up to this point... The focus of this passage has been on the king of the north. And the king of the north, specifically in the person of Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, called Epiphanes, is a type or a picture of the Antichrist. Therefore, there are a few people who say that the Antichrist is going to be equated to the king of the north. Then they also go to a passage, which we'll look at next time, in Isaiah 10, verse 5, that refers to the Assyrian, and their conclusion is that the Antichrist is an Assyrian. Arises out of the geographical area of the old Seleucid Empire, and it's not related to Rome. The problem with that is it's clear from Daniel chapter 9, uh, verse 26, that he, that the first 69 weeks ends when the people of the prince who is to come destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the people of the prince who is to come, the prince who is to come is the Antichrist, the people who destroyed the temple were Romans. So therefore the prince who is to come must be Roman and must be, um, must be a, a European, not a Syrian. Now, this is a view that's taught by a professor I had at Dallas Seminary. Some of you have heard him. Uh, Prof. Hodges, Zane Hodges, takes this position, and I really have some problems with it. And uh, it, I, I just—it's not really um, well supported, I think, in the scriptures. There's a second view that I don't have time to look at now, and that is that this is the false prophet. The second personage of, of uh, the second beast in Daniel or in uh, Revelation chapter 
uh, 13, and we'll look at that position starting next time when we come back. Now, next week there will not be any Bible class on Wednesday night, so we'll just we'll have to cancel again next week, be um, because I will be traveling, trying to drive my way back from from uh, Texas. I got to get the car back somehow, get my wife back somehow. Uh, and I will be speaking Monday and Tuesday at the Conservative Theological Society in Fort Worth, so I appreciate your prayers for that. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for this time to study your word this evening. Thank you for the insights we've gained comparing Scripture with Scripture, coming to a greater understanding of what will take place during the future tribulation and how you will work all these things together for your glory. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this uh, evening that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you have to do to guarantee that you will not be in the tribulation is to put your faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's by simply believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you are enter into the family of God and enter into the church, and therefore receive not only protection from the tribulation, but also from eternal condemnation, and you will have an eternal destiny in heaven. Father, we thank you for the things we've studied tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.